before we get going into our sermon this morning, I want us just to take just a moment and pray for our students. Our students are leaving this afternoon uh, for camp, and so I just want us to take a moment and pray for our youth and their adult leaders uh, who will be at camp this week. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in this moment, and God, we lift up our students and the adults who will be traveling to camp. Father, we pray that, God, you would do a great work in their lives. God, for those who are yours, who are your followers of Christ, God, we pray that you would encourage them, bless them, grow them, sanctify them by your word. God, I pray that you would open their eyes to just your plans for their life, God, that you would call them out to great and glorious things for your glory. And God, we pray for those going who are unbelievers, who do not know you, God, we pray for their salvation, we pray that you would bless them and bring them from darkness into your marvelous light. God, would you grant them safe travels? I pray that you would bless them as they travel to and from, as they take part in recreation, I pray that you would strengthen the, the bond of unity among them. God, may they spur one another on towards love and good deeds this week. And God, I pray for Dan DeWitt and Heart Song as they preach and lead worship. God, I pray that you would bless them, speak powerfully through them. May they proclaim your truth with clarity, with conviction, and in truthfulness. So Lord, we ask your blessing on our camp week this week. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know, we live in, a, in an interesting day. We live in a, a day that I, I would imagine that many of you are, are, are like me. You have notifications on your phone set up. And so typically what is pretty typical for me is I wake up and I roll over and I pick up my phone. And usually every morning there's some type of news notification and and I don't know how you get your news. Maybe it's still sitting in front of the, the live newscast. Maybe it's scrolling through a, a news outlet or a social media uh, app or something. I don't know how it might be. But typically when I receive those updates in the morning, more often than not, they're not really good. More often than not, they tell of some sort of turmoil, some sort of tragedy, some sort of chaos in our world. We live in a day in which the greeting this morning was of multiple acts of violence in one city. We live in a day in which over the past few weeks, a grievous report of multiple acts of abuse in churches has been on the news. We live in a day in which months are devoted to celebrating things that are not to be celebrated on God's word. We live in a day in which sin is celebrated. We live in a day in which life is devalued. The home is undermined and marriage is destroyed. There's a lot of bad news in our day. Not a lot of positive things when we watch the news. The prevailing messages in response to these newscasts, the, the way that secular man tries to handle and respond and navigate these things and get through them or messages that you may have heard well you are the master of your own fate 
You can do and be anything that you want to do and be. You determine your life purpose. You're a good person. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. These, these messages in response to the news of our day may sound good, but they're not true. And the reality we need to understand is that what is not true is not good. We need to come to grips with that. And we need to understand that, that while this is the state of our culture and these are the things going on in our day, and these are the messages sent to us in response to this, that these messages are set and founded upon some, some presuppositions that we need to understand they're founded upon, that we need to be aware of. The presuppositions that these are founded upon, all of these messages are founded upon is first that, that God is not real. God, God isn't real. The, the second presupposition is that, that life is an accomplishment of chance. And therefore, life has no intrinsic value to it. And because of these first two presuppositions, that means that morality and truth is just relative. It's relative. Well, we start a, a series today on the gospel, God's good news. And as we start this series, we're going to work out of what we just talked about. And I want you to see the difference. You see, the difference is the gospel is founded upon a two, three totally separate, three different, three extremely important and true presuppositions. The three presuppositions I gave you a moment ago are, are not true, but listen to these. These are the, the presuppositions that the gospel is founded on. One is that God is real. God is real. And secondly, the God who is real created all things and rules over all things. He is the Lord of all creation who is holy, wise, and good. And because he created all things, that means that life does indeed have intrinsic value. And because of that, because God created all things, because he is real, and because he gave us life, and life has intrinsic value, that means that morality is real. Truth is real. Right is real. Good is real. And we have to understand those presuppositions. But when we understand those, and we understand those in comparison to what secular man would put before us, we have to understand that those messages in response to the news of our day that I, I shared with you at the beginning, they're, they're not true. They're not true. No, and in reality, the, the truth is this, is that you and I, we are not the master of our own fate. I, I no more can control what happens to me tomorrow than I can will myself to float up to the ceiling right now. I can't control. I have no control over what happens in my life tomorrow. What comes or what's coming tomorrow is going to come, and I can't prevent it. I don't know what it is. I'm not the master of my own faith. You can't do everything or anything that you want to do. You can't be anything or anything or anyone you want to be. Yes, you are gifted with incredible abilities and gifts that allow you to do incredible and phenomenal things that God has given you, but you've also been gifted with those same things that also limit you from doing other things. You can't just do everything. I will never, ever be a professional golfer. I can't. 
I can't be anything that I want to be. Mark Fothergill's never going to be a horse jockey. <laughs> it's not going to happen. We can't be anything we want to be. Your life purpose is not self-determined. You're not the master of your own fate. Our Creator has given us a, pur a purpose to fulfill. The question is, will we fulfill the purpose that God has created us to fulfill? Will we step into that? Will we follow Him? Will we, will we pursue Him? You're not a good person. I'm not a good person. That's a lie. You see, you may, you may do good things. I may do good things, but when everything is peeled away on the inside, I'm filled with envy, I'm filled with pride, I'm filled with selfishness, and a plethora of other traits that I would care not to own. And you are the same. It's there. You know it's there. I don't have to convince you of that because you look in the mirror just like I do. You know your thoughts. You know your desires. Following your own heart will not lead you in the right path. Typically, it just leads you in what is best for you, what is selfish, what fulfills those inner desires that we try to pretend we don't have. And being true to yourself, well, if you're just true to yourself doing that alone, that typically leads a stream of brokenness in the lives of those around you. Because being true to yourself typically means neglecting the needs of others around you. See, the gospel message is founded upon the truth. As we look at this, I want you to see and I want you to understand that the, the bad news of all, the, all that we have in our culture... It's there. We're not going to get rid of it. When we wake up tomorrow morning, it's going to be there again. But those messages of culture do not help you to navigate that bad news. The truth of God's word and who he is helps us to live and navigate the course of our world. You see, the news is going to be there. The news is going to be there. But thanks be to God, that in the midst of all the bad news of our day, we know and we have a message of good news. And that's the gospel. And that's what we're going to look at over the next six weeks. The good news of the gospel. And it's the gospel of God. Paul described it in Romans 1.1. He says that he was set apart for the gospel of God. When we think about the gospel, when we talk about the gospel over the next few weeks, this is not some kind of message that, that I generated or someone before me generated, that the church manufactured. It's not that. It's not the message of man. The gospel is the gospel of God, is the message, the good news from God about God to us. That's what the gospel is. It's in contrast, it's in contrast to all the bad news that goes on in our day. Now, some of you, maybe the reason you're here is you didn't think this way. Maybe those who think this way have left stayed at home today. I don't know. I'm not indicting them. Who knows? But some of you may be sitting here going, oh, really? Six weeks on the gospel? Do we really need that? I mean, do we really need to go on a series on the gospel? I mean, we live in the Bible Belt. We go to Grace Baptist Church. We're Christians. Do we need, really need to do that? Yeah, we do. So, some of you may think, well, I know everything I need to know about the gospel. Well, I'm just going to tell you, you don't. And I don't. When we get to the end of our days, I would say we will look out and say, oh, I'm still learning. I'm still growing in my understanding of God's love and His grace displayed in the gospel. 
And I would say as a follow-up to our message out of Matthew 7 several weeks ago, that there may just be some sitting in here who would say, I know the gospel. And you may not. You may not have truly responded to the biblical gospel message. And we don't want you to be one who, when you stand before the Lord and you say, Lord, Lord, did I not do this? Did I not do that? Did I not go here? Did I not go there? That the Lord would look at you and say, away. I never knew you. We need to think deeply upon the gospel. So this morning we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to look at three questions that 1 Corinthians 15 will answer for us. One is, what is the gospel? Second, why do we need this series on the gospel? And then third, why is the gospel of first importance? Three questions that we'll look at this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll read verses 1 through 8 together. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, we see, we see there a statement, we won't get into that this morning, but we see a statement here, the, the perseverance of the saints, that those who are in Christ, who are truly believers, will hold fast to the word that was preached. They will endure, they will persevere, unless it has been in vain that they believe. You might jot down the parable of sowers there, Mark 4, 1 to 20. The contrast of seed that was thrown out, people who seemingly respond momentarily to the gospel message, but they do not endure, they do not persevere. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, I want you just to look at, at verse 3 and 4. There's a, a couple of things we need to point out before we get into our message. One is that he says, I delivered to you of first importance when I also received that Christ died for our sins, what? In accordance with the Scriptures. And then in verse 4, he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, what? In accordance with the Scriptures. You see, the, the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection was not an afterthought. It was not something that happened, and then, then the disciples went back and, go, and went, you know what, let's make this story up. This would be a really neat story. This would really start a cool movement. Let's, let's generate something really, really nice and just a real heart-wrenching story. No. It's in accordance with the Scriptures. This was according to God's ordained plan. We read in Acts uh, 2.23, 1 Peter 1.20, about God having ordained. He had planned this before the beginning of time. This was a part of the plan of God, that Christ would come to redeem sinners as a display of His love, His mercy, and His grace. It's in accordance with the Scriptures. And then we see also here a couple of things. In verse 3 and verse 4, what is the evidence what evidence do we have of the, of the death and resurrection of Christ? Well, in verse 3, the evidence of the death of Christ is what? 
he was buried. He was buried. It wasn't one of those things where they said, okay, uh, yeah, he's dead. Let's take him off the cross, and uh, you guys can see him uh, later in a few days, and, and he just kind of disappears. No, he's, he's buried. They treat his body. They roll the tomb closed. He's buried. What's the evidence of the resurrection? He appeared. It wasn't one of those things where, hey, he's gone. He must have risen. No, he rose and then he appeared bodily among the disciples, among his followers. Here, Paul lists many, many followers. It says he, he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Now, this is important. When Paul writes this, he's writing to the Corinthian church, and he says, listen, he appeared to me, he appeared to the apostles, and more, more around 500 brothers, and most of them are still living. So they're getting this letter, and they're like, oh, yeah, I've met John. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember talking to him. He told me about that. He saw him. He saw Christ bodily. It wasn't a figment of his imagination. He was physically there. He was risen. <coughs> evidence was there. And we need to note the evidence. Now, when... When Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, you remember uh, three or four weeks ago, we looked at the Lord's Supper out of 1 Corinthians 11. And I, I talked to you about how, how Paul writes that letter to the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church is going through all kinds of struggles and difficulties and battles with sin. So he writes this letter to them. Well, here in, in verse, or chapter 15, apparently the struggle is that they were doubting the resurrection. Some were questioning the resurrection. And so Paul writes this chapter, a beautiful chapter, on the resurrection to respond to them. Most likely, they were probably doubting the physical resurrection. In that time, a lot of people would talk about life after death. But to talk about a physical life after death, a bodily resurrection, was probably something that they were really doubting. That's probably the aspect of it they were most doubting. So Paul writes chapter 15 by the leadership of the Holy Spirit to confront and to respond to this and to lead them to see the beauty and the truth and the, imp or the impact, the, the, the importance of the resurrection. But where does he start? Where does he start? We, we jump in this passage all the time around Easter. We, it's a beautiful and a glorious passage around Easter talking about the resurrection. But when, when Paul's going to talk about the resurrection, encourage them in this, where does he begin? He, he begins with the gospel. He says, listen, I, I want to convince you of of, of the reality of the bodily resurrection, but I want to start with the gospel. Now, as a, as a side note, I, I think it is important, and this is something I encounter off and on where, where I talk to people and they go, well, I had a doubt, and I, I went and I talked to a pastor, or I went and I talked to a friend, and they, they, they kind of spoke down to me about my doubts. They condemned me because of my doubts and shamed me because of my doubts. I shouldn't doubt, and because I'm doubting, it's of... It's just of Satan in it, and, and it, I need to have stronger faith. Now listen, the people in Corinth evidently were doubting and questioning the resurrection, and Paul doesn't shame them. Paul just talks with them and it reminds them. He says, I remind you of the gospel. I remind you of the gospel, and he, he teaches them. He talks to them about the resurrection. Listen, when, when you have doubts, you don't run from them. You don't hide them. You don't suppress them. You seek the Lord. You turn to the, the truth of Scripture and, and you look for the answers. You look for the truth. And if it's the doubts of someone around you, you don't shame them or cast them away. I can't believe you would doubt. As though you've never had any doubts. No. You encourage them. You build them up. You teach them. You lovingly come aside them. 
Well, Paul does. And so Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Now, why when talking about the resurrection does he backtrack and go, let's start talking about just the gospel as a whole. Let's start talking about the message that we have, the good news that we bear, right? Gospel simply means good news. Why does he start talking about the good news? Well, he comes back to to remind the gospel because the resurrection of the dead is no greater mystery than the incarnation of God. The fact that, that, that the dead would rise bodily is no greater miracle than the fact that, that God himself came in the flesh. Philippians 2, 6-8 talks about Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. That's amazing. John 1, 1 through 3, and then, and then down into John 14, 1, 14. says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made all right praise the Lord John and then in verse 14 what does he say and the word became flesh and dwelt among us the word became flesh Christ the son of God the eternally existent son of God takes on flesh to come and dwell among us. Does the bodily resurrection amazes you, blows you away, makes you shake your head? Does not the incarnation make you do the same? Should we not see the mystery, the beautiful mystery of that? But guess what? He didn't just take on flesh. He didn't just come and live among us. He didn't just come and live a life as our example. No, he came to die. Have you considered the beauty of the message that the Son of God would take on flesh to live among us and come and die for us? The resurrection is no greater mystery than that. I mean, what did, what did we just sing? Come behold the wondrous mystery. In the dawning of the King, He, the theme of heaven's praises, He's robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended and took on flesh to ransom us. Is that not a beautiful mystery? Is it not a wonderful mystery that the perfect Son of Man in His living and His suffering, He never had a trace nor stain of sin. He was the true and better Adam who came to save, save the hell-bound man. What a beautiful mystery that is. That we would step back and behold this wondrous mystery. Oh, the resurrection is amazing. We're not minimizing that. But don't miss how amazing the gospel message is. That Christ the Lord was upon the tree in the stead of ruined sinners, hung the lamb in victory. Don't miss how beautiful it is to see and behold the price of our redemption, to see the Father's plan unfold, how He brings many sons to glory. It was indeed grace unmeasured and love untold. We can't overlook that. We can't just scoot by it. And so Paul, in responding to the questions and the doubts about the resurrection, says, let me remind you of the gospel. So Grace Baptist Church, 
in the midst of the difficulties of life, in the midst of you sitting back and going, wow, I'm having doubts about this, or my goodness, look at the state of the world, look at everything that's going on. We come to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, and we read, now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel. So our first question, what is the gospel? What is it? What is the gospel? It's a question that we need to step back and we need to ask ourselves. How, how would you define the gospel? If right here in the, the midst of the sermon, someone leans over to you and, and as we got going, somebody leaned over and said, hey, what is the gospel? He keeps saying the gospel. What is the gospel? What would your answer be? How would you respond to him? You need to go to church. It's not the gospel. You need to say a prayer, not the gospel. You're going to hell, not the gospel. You need to be a good person, not the gospel. You need to read your Bible, not the gospel. Abortion is wrong, not the gospel. LGBTQ plus is sinful, not the gospel. What is the gospel? No, none of those statements are inherently wrong. If I look at you and say, you need to be like Jesus, it's not wrong, but it's not the gospel. The gospel is the message of good news. None of those statements in and of themselves are God's good news to man. What is God's good news to man? What is it? How would you describe it? If someone leans over, you don't have 30 minutes. I hope you don't because it will take the rest of our time together, right, that you'd be sitting there explaining to them. Hopefully, if somebody leaned over to you and asked, you could briefly, in a few seconds, say, the gospel is this, and you explain it to them. But what is it? Well, in verses 3 and 4, we have perhaps one of the most succinct, brief statements of what the gospel is. Look what Paul says. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received... That Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day. Right? So Paul gives us very quick statements. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised. These are loaded words. We're going to discuss these more in weeks to come. This isn't, we're not going to just go by these and not come back to them. We'll come back to them. We don't have time today. But just for a moment, just think, just even saying Christ, this is a loaded word. Hey, Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. What, what is it that Christ, that God, God is there, God is real. So there we go. It speaks importantly about God and man to say Christ. That God sends one. Why would he send one? Why would he need to send one? Why would a Messiah be needed? Christ, the loaded word there. Why did he come? What's it say? He came and died for our sins. Died for our sins. We'll talk about this in a few weeks, but it's, it's substitutionary atonement that, that Christ came and died for us. He died in our place. Why would that be necessary? Why is that important? There's some other passages that summarize the gospel similar to this. I, I would kind of describe them as kind of gospel in a nutshell passages in Scripture. One you heard from Brother Vertries as he read our Scripture reading, our hearing of the Word this morning in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Another one that... that uh, describes and explains the gospel very succinctly is Colossians 2, 13 to 14, where Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. A good description of the gospel. Or what about John 3.16? Why is that verse so popular? Well, it's because in one verse you have the gospel in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son or his only begotten son. That what? That whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Or you have also Romans 3, 21 to 25, a beautiful description of the gospel. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, for the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Just beautiful descriptions of the gospel. The good news of God. Now as you walk through Scripture, you walk through the, the whole of Scripture, if you go from Genesis to Revelation, look at the meta-narrative, the big storyline of, of, the, of the Scriptures. We see... Four important points and themes of the gospel message. We see them in each of these descriptions. There's four key points that we would need to understand about the gospel message. They're on the screen for you right now. And this is what we'll look at in the next four weeks. God, man, Jesus, response. Four key aspects of the gospel that we need to know and understand. So how do you answer that question? Someone leans over and they, they just say, well, we're talking about it. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the, the good news that God who is holy, who created all things and reigns supreme over all things, He's the Lord of all creation. He created man in His image and His likeness to have fellowship, communion with Him. But man rebelled against God. Man sinned against Him. And the punishment for that sin was eternal death and damnation because God is holy and He is just and He is righteous. And there was nothing that man could do to pay that debt. Nothing that man could do to get rid of that guilt. Nothing. But God knew this and God had planned to redeem man. So God sent forth His only Son, Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, who lived a perfect, sinless life who went and suffered death on a cross, not for any sin he had done, but because of our sin. And he rose victorious from the grave. He died on the cross. Three days later, he rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. And the great promise of Scripture, the good news, is that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All who repent from their sins and trust in Christ alone will be saved. Brothers and sisters, friends, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That is good news. It's good news. It's good news. That's the gospel. It's the good news from God because it tells us 
what God has done, what that we, God has done what we were incapable of doing. It's good news because it speaks life to our dead souls. It's good news because it tells us how we can be restored into a right relationship with God. It's good news because it gives us hope of eternal life. It's good news because in it, the guilt we have before God is removed and paid for by Christ. So first and foremost, this morning, as we get into this series, the first question, the most important question that I would ask you is, have you responded to the biblical gospel message? I am not asking if you go to church. I'm not asking if you've walked an aisle. I'm not asking if you've gotten baptized. I'm not asking if you live a good life, if you defend the right causes, if you know Christian lingo, if you pray to prayer. I'm asking, have you responded to the gospel message in repentance and faith? Have you responded to the biblical gospel message in repentance and faith, what was shared just a moment ago? I'm not asking if you said, well, you know, somebody asked me if I went to church and I felt really bad about it. I said, no, I don't go to church. And so I've started coming to church. That's great. It's not the gospel message and it's not a biblical response. Have you responded in repentance and faith to the biblical gospel message? First and most important question. The second question that we look at from this text is, why do we need this series? In verses 1 and 2, Paul gives three statements that talk about the importance of the gospel. And those three statements deal with the importance of the gospel in the past, the present, and the future. And I think these are three really good reasons for us today as Grace Baptist Church why we need to look and think upon and study the gospel over the next six weeks. So first, he says in in verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the past. I would remind you of the gospel, how how quick we are to forget what should never be forgotten. I I still can hear the words of you guys who are are Tolkien fans and Lord of the Rings, the the beginning. I can't quote it verbatim right now. I should have looked it up before we came in here. But the intro to Lord of the Rings where he says what should never have been forgotten was forgotten and what was forgotten became myth and legend. Oh, how quick we are to forget how easy it is for us to struggle with gospel amnesia. How quick we are to, dis- to forget and lose sight of the love of God displayed for us in the gospel on the cross. How quickly we can forget the wrath of God towards sin that is only satisfied by Christ's death on the cross. How quickly and easily we forget the miracle of the incarnation of Jesus coming in the flesh. How quick and easy we are to forget the hope that is found in Christ alone. How quick and easy we are to forget that we are saved by faith alone and not by works. That we can't depend on what we do, what we earn, any kind of certificate. We don't depend on those. We need to be reminded of the gospel, just like the Corinthian church did. Do you remember Psalm 103? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. Forget it not. Don't forget all that God's done. This, this idea of remembering is throughout Scripture. In 2 Timothy 2.8, Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The offspring of David is preached in my gospel. He's writing that to Timothy. He says, remember, remember Jesus Christ. Don't forget who he is. Don't forget what he did. Don't, don't forget. Or what about three weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 11? We talked about the Lord's Supper, right? 
Why do we do the Lord's Supper? What does he say? Here's my body, the bread, broken for you. Here's the cup, my blood poured out for you. The new covenant. Why do we do that? What does he say? Do this what? In remembrance of me. In remembrance. We are to remember the work of Christ. We need to remember what he did. We need to remember the gospel. Let us not forget the gospel. We cannot forget the gospel. So that's the past. Then he makes a present statement. A present statement. He says, I would remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Here's the present reality. The gospel is that in which we stand. In which we stand. It's the present reality. It's not, the, the gospel, listen, is not something that we just trusted in the past and then we move on from and forget about as though it was some kind of like this childhood Christmas gift that we got all amped up about and excited about and a few days later forgot and now as adults we don't even remember. I think that's how we treat the gospel sometimes. It was this wonderful thing in the moment, but then we just kind of move on from it. No, the gospel is that in which we stand. It is that in which we reside. We reside in the salvation of the Lord. It's the air in which we breathe. It's the water in which we swim. The gospel is relevant to our lives today. The gospel that saves us, sustains us as believers. It's the gospel in which we stand. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Paul said, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, he's talking about the results of salvation. We've been justified by faith, how we've been reconciled to God. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's the, the grace of God in which we stand. To stand means that we walk in daily communion with Him. That we walk through daily life in light of the truth of what God has done in our lives. That He is our hope. That we're trusting Christ for salvation. We trust Christ daily. That He has granted us eternal life. And we're walking daily in that. We're standing daily in that. The, the exhortation from Paul throughout the New Testament is stand firm in Christ. Stand firm in the gospel. And so we walk through Christ or through life as Christians standing in the hope that cannot be crushed by tragedy. It cannot be crushed by disease. It cannot be crushed by illness, loss, failure, or guilt of sin because we stand in the gospel. And the gospel message does not change. Gospel reality, gospel truth does not change. We stand daily in Him. That's why we sing, In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, and my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, Firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled and striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. I stand here. That's where my confidence, that's where my peace, that's where my hope resides is in what Christ has done in me and what he is doing through me. It is not me, it is him. Yet not I, but Christ in me. We stand in that. We stand in that reality so that no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. I'm not the master of my own fate. He commands my destiny. So no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. It is the gospel in which we stand. It's the gospel in which we live. We live. It is a present reality in which we live.
So we have the past, we have the present, and then he makes a statement third about the future. He said the gospel by which you, there in verse 2, by which you are being saved. By which you are being saved. Our salvation is secure. It is settled in Christ. That there is indeed a future element of it. We indeed are saved now from the penalty of sin. But we are being saved daily by the power of God, by the grace of God. From the presence and the power of sin. So we have been saved from, death, from sin's penalty. That's paid for. That's settled. That's done. No penalty to suffer. But God is saving us daily, right, from the presence and the power of sin. There is an ultimate day that we are going toward the ultimate glory where we stand before God and we are saved from even the presence and the power of sin. Sin is no more. This idea of being saved, something that God is presently doing, working towards a future reality. Paul starts the letter with that. 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The theologian Leon Morris said that salvation is not exhausted by a man's experience when he first believes. God is continuing to save us. He is continuing to redeem us. So believers, we cast our gaze to a greater and a more better city. It's the city described in Hebrews eleven sixteen and 13, 14. It's the city that John Bunyan described in Pilgrim's Progress as the celestial city that we are on a journey towards, that we are striving for, that we are longing for, that no longer will we be in the presence and have to struggle against the power of sin. But we will be freed of that and ultimately and wholly and gloriously saved. Past, present, future. Why do we need this series? Because we can't forget the gospel. Because the gospel is that in which we stand and live daily. And because we are being saved. We can't forget the gospel. Last question. I've always been captivated by what Paul says here in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. You see a similar framework. Do you remember in chapter 11, he said that same thing about the Lord's Supper? That what I received, I'm giving to you. I'm being faithful to transmit what has been given to me, what's been passed along to me. I'm passing on to you. And same thing here. He says what was delivered to me, I'm now sending to you. What I received, I'm delivering to you a faithfulness. We're all here because... Praise the Lord, believers have been faithful to teach, preach, and proclaim the gospel. And we are tasked with the same thing. That we would be faithful to teach and preach and proclaim the gospel that this next generation of believers sitting in here in our midst would know and trust the gospel message. But why is it of first importance? Why is it of first importance? You might... You might recall, just a few chapters back in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, you remember what Paul began when he wrote the letter? This is what he wrote. If you've, you, some of you have never heard this. Some of you might remember this. In chapter 2 of the same letter, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, much trembling. My speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith 
might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul, Paul begins writing the letter and says, listen, at the end of the day, we just came to you with the gospel. Because we don't want your faith to be in Paul. We want your faith to be in Christ. And now we come to verse 15, or chapter 15. He says, listen, I delivered to you as of first importance. As of first importance. And Paul doesn't go on, this is who I am. Look how smart I am. Look how well trained I am. Look at what I gave up. Look at me. Look how eloquent I am. Look at how my great understanding of philosophy and culture is. No. What's the first importance? It's none of that. The first importance is what? The gospel. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ arose. That's the first importance, he says. Paul describes it as primary, of paramount importance, of foundational importance. It's not first in sequence. It's first in value and meaning. Listen, the gospel is not some some tagline that we add on to our website or that we, we, we write out to justify our existence as a church. It's not something that we just do whatever we do as a church and then we tag on and go, oh, it's the gospel. We're gospel-centered. We just throw that on there just to kind of justify this is why we're doing it. It's, it's, it's not some trendy shirt that we wear to impress people, to look like we're nice Christians because we have a really cool shirt that says something about the gospel. It's not a cool hat we wear. It's not a four-step process that we tack on to the end of a sermon. It's not, it's not a, a prayer we pray to motivate to, or to spiritualize a motivational speech. And unfortunately, that's where the gospel's been relegated to. You can give this nice motivational speech, this self-help therapy, and then say, just pray this prayer and you're saved. And people never repent. They never believe. They never hear the true gospel message. The gospel has just been relegated to that. It's been relegated to a slogan. It's been relegated to an identifier of who you are, the church. Paul says the gospel is of paramount importance. It's primary importance. It's foundational. It's, it's the most valuable thing you can have as a church is the gospel. If you lose the gospel, you've lost your church. You can't lose the gospel. The gospel is the good news from God about what God has done to reconcile us to God. We can't lose the gospel. It was preached about. Talking about the good news. Isaiah first prophesied and spoke of good news in Isaiah 40 verse 9, 52 verse 7, 61 verse 1. And he's preaching the good news, the message of good news that the exiles would return. And the fullness of the gospel that we see in Scripture is not just that the exiled Israelites would return, but that sinners would return to communion and relationship to God. That's the beauty of the gospel. We can't forget it. That's why it's of utmost importance. It's the good news that we can return to God by His grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. The gospel is of primary importance because it's good news that it is the foundation of our faith, it's the foundation of our life, it's the hope that we have in life. Because in it, we are freed from sin. In it, we have been saved from the wrath of God. Listen, we're not just saved. We're not saved from Satan. We're saved, we're saved from God's wrath. Read the book of Romans. The gospel is God's work to save us from himself. That's the biblical teaching. That's good news. 
The gospel is of paramount importance because it is the hope that not only in this life, but in the life to come, we have hope in Christ. It's the message that death has been defeated. And it's the message, the only message, that can heal the brokenness in our world. That's it. Every other message, everything's going to keep going. But look at history. Just look at history. Go read history. Go read about major movements of the Lord. When there is a revival, cultures are changed. Cultures are changed. You don't change the culture. Cling to, stand on, and proclaim the gospel. So what does it mean for us to be of paramount, of first, of primary importance? What it look like? What does it look like? It means that the gospel influences and guides all that we do. All that we do. Not just what we preach, but how the hallway in the offices works is governed by the gospel. Where we go, what we do, is determined by the gospel. It changes who we are. It changes who we are. We are a new creation in Christ. The gospel changes us. The gospel being of paramount importance means that it impacts how we relate to those around us. We don't relate as the world relates to others. We don't respond to situations in the ways that the secular man responds. No, we respond in situations with love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. Because the gospel. And the gospel being paramount means that it changes the course and the goal of our lives. It influences the direction you head, the goal of your career. Young people, it should influence the way you think about college and your profession. It doesn't necessarily mean you change those things, but it means you approach them with gospel intentionality and how you can advance the gospel, proclaim Christ, the good news of God. Church, we must not lose the gospel. We must not forget it. We must be faithful to stand in it. And the reality is, is that is not getting easier to do. By all indications, it's going to get more and more difficult. We must stand in the gospel. Those of you who are unbelievers, perhaps you're skeptical. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you sat and listened. And I want to invite you to be here the next five weeks as we dig into what is the significance of those four words. Why is it good news to consider God, man, Jesus, in response, why are those important? Why are they significant? What do they mean? Maybe you've been burnt in the past by Christians. You don't worship Christians. I don't worship Christians. Praise the Lord. I worship Christ. Christians didn't die for you. Christ died for you. 
Maybe you just have doubts and questions. Join us. Join us. Let's answer them together. Let's walk through Scripture. Let's think deeply and behold the wondrous mystery that is the good news of God. Let's pray. Lord, we just bow before you, God, today. And Lord, we pray that, that God, you would bless this series over the next few weeks. God, that you would bless it for your glory. That the name of Christ would be magnified and exalted. That your great grace would be something that we truly are struck in amazement of. That God, moments over the next few weeks, whether it's just us studying your word on our own or reading a book about the gospel or thinking about what we hear in the sermon or sitting in the midst of corporate worship singing of the gospel or hearing your preached word of the gospel, I pray that there would be moments when we are just struck and our jaws drop because we are in awe and amazed at your great grace. God, I pray that we as believers, God, that we would rejoice and we would be filled with thanksgiving. That God, you would kindle anew a desire to spread the good news, to advance the gospel. God, that you would solidify our, our confidence in the gospel and you would help us to stand firm in the gospel in the coming weeks and, and leading into the months and years ahead. God, may we rest in the gospel as your people. God, guard us from just falling into temptation to depend on our own works and to look to ourselves our deeds. Guard us from legalism, Lord, and help us to ever and daily trust in you to persevere, Lord. God, I pray for friends who are here today, or friends that, that we know that we might be able to invite and, and, and bring in to, to hear over the next few weeks. God, I pray that you would do a great work of salvation in their lives. God, would you just powerfully move by your Spirit? God, as, as we as we engage and we talk about the gospel, God, as I preach about it, God, I pray that you would just remove us. Let us not be any kind of a hindrance. Let us not bring glory to ourselves as, as friends or as preachers, God, but let us give glory to you. And I pray that people would see and respond to the biblical gospel message. God, would you please move in a powerful way among friends. God, we commit this time to you. And God, as we stand to sing, God, may we think deeply in amazement of your grace. Thank you, oh God, for saving us. In Christ, our Lord. Amen.